0: Hey, welcome back to Money in the Air, the Neighboring Rights Podcast brought to you by IFR. Today, we have the regulars, Gina, Andrew, Tanya, and myself. And Naomi's joining us today. And then we have some new guests. We have Steve McMillan and Dennis Dreeth because we're going to talk about film and television and neighbouring rights. I'll let the boys introduce themselves. Steve, you go first, please.
2: Good evening, everybody, or good morning, wherever you are. I'm Steve McMillan. I'm the CEO of the London and Nashville-based music production and publishing and motion picture company, Southern Crossroads Music. I'm also director of music for the Goldfinch Studios, which is a film finance production and sales operation. Effectively, I've got two roles there, really, which see me carrying on business on either side of the spectrum. Firstly, I'm a rights creator, a rights holder and a rights controller at Southern Crossroads Music. And then secondly, I'm an end user and commissioner of rights, or indeed licensor of rights, at Goldfinch Music for film and TV. A double agent, you might say, but experience on both sides of the equation.
0: Dennis, your
2: turn. I spent the
3: bulk of my life as a film composer, orchestrator, and conductor. I was also president of the Recording Musicians Association for many years, worked with collective bargaining issues with the Musicians Union here in the U.S. I was uh, the CEO of the Film Musicians Secondary Markets Fund and the CEO of the AFM and SAG After Intellectual Property Rights Distribution Fund. And currently, I'm chairman of Transparency Entertainment Group, which is an agency uh, working primarily in neighboring rights. We also were involved more recently in audio Visual neighboring rights.
0: Just in case anyone out there doesn't know, can you explain the difference between production music and music used in sync for film and television?
2: I don't think there is any real difference between production music and music that's embedded in film or TV program. I think if production music is used in a program, it should go on the cue sheet, on the music cue sheet in the normal way. It should have an ISRC number and income should be collected from that. I have no doubt about it. I know a lot of societies will disagree with me and a lot of people might disagree with me, but I really struggle to find any reason or rationale why production music should not attract these payments. Dennis, do you
3: disagree? There are some differences, but the differences really are (coughs) how music is created and how it winds up in the film that doesn't affect how it should be compensated underscore music, which is basically music that is composed specifically for the film. A composer looks at the film, writes music solely and exclusively for that scene, similar to musical cues that are written for the underscore. How they wind up in the picture, how they're created may be different, but at the end of the day, it's music that's synchronized to a film, and our view clearly is that those who are involved in the creation of that, both as composers and music preparation personnel, and those who've been involved in the performance of those cues should be compensated equally and fairly
0: I say whatever's in the contract governs. So if you're doing, whether it's a bespoke commission contract or a sync license, if you write in that the track must have an ISRC code, whoever's going to own it has to register it for neighboring rights, then that's what happens. But that hasn't been the history. And if I could ask one of my core panel, can you explain the triple weighting at MCPS, please?
1: So in the UK, MCPS, in order to account for production music, if you register at MCPS as a production music library, then there is a triple weighting that happens so that you effectively, the public performance is effectively taken into account for the audiovisual. And it's just a different way because it has to do with the blanket licenses between the networks and MCPS. So in the UK, you get a have a blanket license from say the BBC. BBC is gonna use a certain amount of production music. Having a triple waiting system with MCPS, it's all part of the nature of the license and then why a production music library that's registered at MCPS as a production music library can't also register at PPL because they've effectively already paid those royalties over to MCPS. And then what MCPS does with them in terms of whether or not they pay the composer, whoever performs on it, which is usually the composer, has to do with the contract with that
2: composer. In terms of the triple weighting, what is the history of that? triple waiting for on production music it's
1: certainly been around for a long time i don't know the full history i'm afraid if i had to take a guess i'd say it probably has to do with the mu because everything always seems to go back to something historical with the mu but i can't really elaborate more than that
2: production music is music that's that's embedded into the film So therefore it should receive all of the economic benefits that other music does.
0: I have a client who was in a BBC show recently and they were singing his song, his biggest hit live in the scene in the TV show. And we were pushing for them to get an ISRC number and as rights holder, well he's rights holder but they would be the licensee in this case to register the ISRC number with PPL. They didn't know how to do it. We had to handhold them step by step how to get an isrc number for that particular production use and i suspect that's going to be the thing we have to do now for the future is teach producers how to get isrc numbers
3: largely in the u.s it's really a political problem what happened is if you look at as cap and bmi but it's- ASCAP being around the longest, they set a certain number of standards in the U.S. and that became, since the film capital was here, it basically set a lot of standards for elsewhere. But what happened, you look at the the ASCAP component, the board is made up of publishers and composers. That's now expanded quite a bit to include a large component of film composers. So we have songwriters and film composers and publishers at the same time, but those are the groups that sort of set the rate standards. And there's really nobody on the ASCAP board who really as an advocate for production music. Uh, So any advocacy for production music has to happen from outside of the board, and it's very tough because those are the decisions that are made. It's interesting when you look at it, you know, people say, well, but it's, it's, it's pre-existing music that's licensed for the film. And you go, well, it is, but it has a use. Interesting to note that if there's a song, take a pop song, that's licensed for a motion picture, and let's say that that has what's called a, a visual vocal. So we see somebody on camera lip-syncing to that song, that pays at the very highest rate that you can get uh, on, a, on a cue sheet for a film. Now, if you have the same situation with a piece of production music, you'll be lucky if it gets credited on the cue sheet and it certainly won't be treated the same. And to me, it's silly. If uh, if both are licensed music, then they should be treated according to whatever category they fall in on, on the licensing. But I think it really goes back to this whole political issue that there's nobody to advocate for production music. And then the US uh, production music really for the longest time was a really, really small component. There were very few people really doing it. The most of the production music came from Europe years ago. It was only in the last maybe 15 years that we've seen a real growth. And the, and the nature of production music has shifted quite a bit. What we see now or not just Generic underscore cues, but we see all kinds of things that, that mimic sound recordings in many ways that are now being licensed into Plums' production music. So I think the time has come, and I think the way to do that is going to probably have to be some, from some serious advocacy from inside the organization, because that's who set the rates, that's
2: who set the standards. A lot of producers are actually not uh, going through this MCPS um, triple waiting that Naomi talked about. A lot of them are relying on their own sales and their own pushing of the, the music. So effectively, that that tune is going out there with um, an ISRC code and it's being licensed accordingly. And then, of course, we can get it on the cue sheet and we can ensure that it's registered correctly. But that's, that's only a fairly recent development that I'm seeing here in the UK. It's certainly not the norm. The norm was definitely the, um, you know, everyone would just go to a production music library and type in a little bit. Um, and the media data would pull out a few tracks and then you would license them. But um, I, think, I think the actual nature of production music is evolving a little bit. I think the definition is broadening out a little bit more. And I think it's more specific music aimed at genres. And um, I think the more sales and marketing that the producers and the production companies are doing, the better.
0: And do you build that into your agreements as a creator? Yes,
2: yes, Good. Most definitely. Yes, most Good. definitely. But, but... I must admit that's probably only in the last 18 months, 24 months, because it's not not something that it's always, I think, been a little bit underneath the radar. And maybe it shouldn't have been. But um, certainly it's something we're doing now. And it's a little bit like music cue sheets generally, because many, many music cue sheets that I see and I'm having to um, sign off on and approve just haven't got the information that um, they should have on them. And the production company, you know, sort of whinging and whining, we need this signed off. Well, that's all fine and well, but I need this information and that information. It's become quite a, quite a battle. And um, it, it's 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 a bit of a pain, actually, a bit of a pain.
0: Will you create different ISRC codes for that particular visual production? Or will you, you use the original ISRC code that you created?
2: Generally, we'll use new codes for that. Generally, we'll use new codes, yeah.
0: So it's upon the creator... To get a new code for the visual production, take that the responsibility cr- yourself. The, yeah, yeah.
2: The, the, cre- the creator and the producer of that of that tune of that piece of work. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly the way we approach it.
0: So, which territories pay neighboring rights? For film and television,
2: I
3: will say that almost every territory has some form of audiovisual right that they collect on, but it, it can be very, very limited. For example, some territories are quite robust. Spain will pay for theatrical uses and television uses. Uh, Germany pays um, on theatrical and television, including cable as well. But but those rates are very small. But they pay a large amount of money for private copy for audiovisual. So there's a huge component there. Um, other territories. Have a right, but they can be extremely limited. Society Norma, the audiovisual rights society in uh, the Netherlands, and what they will do is they'll pay audiovisual rights, but only. On uh, so- sound recordings licensed into a motion picture that were recorded in a Rome convention country, so they have a very, very limited uh, audiovisual rights. So we see that you know every territory is somewhat different. Uh, Brazil has quite a, a robust uh, audiovisual right. And so we see that almost every territory has them. Italy has uh, audiovisual rights, but will only pay uh, based on reciprocity. So for example, in the US, uh, we have no reciprocity. We have no audiovisual rights protected. Our sound recording rights are somewhat limited as well, but managed to be robust enough to generate a lot of money in the U.S. and allow us to collect from several sources on neighboring rights. But audiovisual, we have virtually no protections. All audiovisual kind of re- remuneration that happens for performers in the U.S. happens via collective bargaining. So that leaves us to only collect from societies that will honor an audiovisual right absent or some kind of reciprocity. Reciprocity, and those are only three societies that I'm aware of. And that's AIE in Spain, GVL in Germany, and Abramas in uh, Brazil. I think UBC and Brazil also does that. I'm not sure. Uh, we've not seen anything from them, but they may actually honor that. I'm not I'm not sure about that. But the countries are Brazil, Spain, and Germany that honor um, audiovisual rights regardless of the you know Rome status, con- you know, uh, of a performer. Uh, but the bottom line is that all societies have some form of them. Um, uh, at least in, in, in Europe, most EU uh, countries. For example, I believe there's, there's, with the exception, I don't believe there is an audiovisual right in uh, Great Britain, but they managed to collect from other uh, EU territories, even though they're no longer part right. of the EU. It's complicated, and it's all over the map,
2: is what I'm saying. I, I would agree with that. It's complicated and all over the map. And, and it doesn't actually comply with um, the, the, the territorial situation on production music, because... Uh, If you look what societies pay for um, the use of production music and which ones don't. I mean, it's quite interesting. A lot of the former Eastern European jurisdictions and territories purport to pay on production music. Now, I don't know whether anybody's actually got any examples or any um, that can support that but that's certainly something that, that we found out but of course yeah, Poland as well Poland was on the list.
0: Yeah Poland and Croatia and I'm going to test my geography like the former Yugoslavian countries but saying that it's very very difficult to get stuff up there and then submit the discography especially in Croatia at not their discography template is it, it's pretty wild and it's I don't know if any of you have seen it but it's it kind of it's almost impossible but yeah you're right steve yeah eastern europe pays. steve dennis are you happy to start writing those into your agreements and pushing back on work for hires
3: yes uh and it's interesting because the work for hire in the u.s has a slightly different connotation we are not um almost everything in the u.s is a work for hire but it doesn't preclude uh performers from collecting rights so uh under the collective bargaining agreement, it's all work for hire. So uh, I think the the key is really making sure it's registered correctly. Uh, part of the problem is that we'd see, uh, at least from ASCAP cue sheets for U.S. productions, we actually see production music listed um, on a number of cue sheets, but there's insufficient information on those to be able to attach that to any performer. So what happens is the AFM sag After fund, for example, gets um, they get money from Spain to pay an audiovisual right and they have the cue sheet for the picture to pay it on. And the cue sheet may uh, have been generated here. And somebody will list, you know, whatever production music. Oftentimes, I've worked on a couple of pictures. I've seen the cue sheet, and there'll be music that I never recognized, and it'll be or not be a, a piece of production music it was licensed. But there's, the, at best, you may get uh, the name of a publisher attached to that, and, but then there's no, but they won't provide any information to pay any performers whatsoever on it. So, but, so that's a big problem.
0: When someone is negotiating the agreement on behalf of the composer perform- slash performer, the agreement itself has to change. The agreement has to say that they as rights holder, the production company as rights holder, will register as the rights holder the recording by or before the release date of the production. Yeah, and
3: I think some of the, and ironically, some of the uh, uh, music production houses push back on that very thing themselves, because they, you know, their their notion is they're the rights holder, they want to have that. And I think part of it is is an educational process. One of the things that Steve and I have talked about is is the need for education to really get people in the production music space to understand how they can you know, take advantage of this. Uh, Some of them have done business a certain way and they've been successful with that business and, uh, but yet they're leaving money on the table. And so it's getting them to understand that. And I think that, uh, you know, the point is, is it's fine, the the group that could really push that the hardest, you know, the composer, for example, unless I'm really writing, uh, unless I'm the person licensing the production music itself um, as a composer, Uh, I don't have much power to tell the company how they have to register uh, pieces of music they purchased for somebody else. But the production music company who's making the production music and licensing that are in tremendous um, leverage that they don't use. Because oftentimes, they're licensing music at the last minute, the production company, the film company, has to have that piece of music to be able to make their dubbing date, make a release date. uh, And they would be um, uh, happy to... uh, for them, it would just be a business person saying, I'll find it, you know, register the rights holder and get an ISRC for that. We don't care. And they would do it. But the really ask has to come from the person licensing the production, music. at least in my opinion.
0: That's why we have to lobby the Producers Guild, because, and that's why it's called money in the air. They yep. could be clawing back some of the money they're spending on music by collecting as the rights holder. It's crazy that
3: they're not. Where I think we would see a change. And we're gonna see, we are going to see a change. If we look at the makeup, uh, and I'm more familiar with ASCAP than BMI or CSAC, but so I, I'm an ASCAP writer and publisher, so I'm more aware of what goes on there. But uh, when we see some heavy hitters who are involved in production, when Hans Zimmer and Bleeding Fingers, for example, when Bleeding Fingers becomes a elected to the ASCAP board as a publisher member, because that's where the, where, the, where the push is going to come. And on a heavy hitter like that who has a lot of money at stake is saying, you know, now I'm going to vote on something that's going to make me more money. And they're going to bootstrap the other people along. So that's what has to change. There has to be a change, at least in the political makeup of ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC but uh, I think ASCAP would be the leader in this. And I've talked to the people at ASCAP and their attitude is very much like, well, if that happens, of course, if there's a one of those people gets elected to the board, then they're going to have their voice and their seat at the, at the table. Uh, but somebody has to be a powerful hitter. And we're going to see that happen. It's going to be, uh, it, it could be, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Sony Music um, is, is entering into this area in, in a lot of other ways. We um, seeing Warner Brothers and Universal. So at some point, one of those companies, you know, somebody who's, who, has a, who really has sort of a horse in that race is going to to the board and say, wait a second, that's not right. I want my share. Why, why don't I get the same amount?
0: Can I just clarify for our listeners, because we bang on every week about it has nothing to do with publishing. Yes. But that. But it's different here for film and television, because quite often the composer is the performer as well. So we're talking about them as the same individual here, but it's because, like Dennis says, in the U.S., the, the publishers used to have much more authority and power. All the legislation about controlled compositions is because all the power was in the hands of the publisher. So we're not going back on what we said. Stay with us. In every other
3: area, the neighboring rights really are the performance rights for the performers. They're really sort of totally separate from publishing. Here, it's part of the problem is it's the publishing aspect of this that drives the attitudes about the neighboring rights for audiovisual. So I, I don't know why, but I'm just saying because of so many people involved You know, yes. both of those hats. They're the performers and they're the, the, the either the rights holder or the, the composer themselves involved in that. So a lot of that. What would happen is that, uh, for example, a film company, they're going to care about what money they can make. So uh, when it's a work for hire, when I do a work for hire, uh, most of the time, um, I'm not um, a big enough name that I get to keep much, if anything, of my publishing. Most of the time I'm working for a film company, if it's, it's a big company, they get the publishing. I only keep the publishing on small independent films, and I generally keep all the publishing. But most of the time, I'm working for a company, uh, they get all the publishing. Um, so they only care about the money that they can get. Uh, if I license something to them, and I'm the rights holder, I care about that money, but they don't really get any share of that. I'm, I'm retaining those rights. So I'm retaining, in those cases, I have the neighboring rights and the publishing rights. So the company is not going to really care so much about what it is. They would. They only care about what they get. So that's, that's the problem. That's why I'm saying this has to emanate uh, in terms of the fight for the rights has to emanate from the, the rights holder themselves, it has to be the person who has to stand up and fight for it.
0: Would they let you, so if it's not, if it's work for hire and you're not retaining the rights, would they let you release it um, digitally as a piece of music on Spotify, say?
3: Uh, it varies from company to company. Generally, that's something, uh, I always put that in my contracts, that I want to have the, the Right to do that, um, the bigger companies will fight on that. I had I had a huge fight with Universal Music Group over this. They wouldn't give me the rights. I was working on a picture, and I wanted to, and it had a lot of um, period jazz music, and it would be kind of specific. But I really wanted to release this album. It was, it was quite unique, and I wanted to retain those rights. They said, No, no, we have companies that do that. We want to do it. Well, they argued and argued. I was not successful. I'm I'm me. They were Universal. They kept those rights. They never released a record you know so it's crazy and and I've gone back to them and I said I have a label you know I have I have a I have a soundtrack deal with a label that wants to release that wants to license it from them to do it. So we can't even get them to do it because they keep saying, it's funny, the fact that we've had this interest in doing it has made them say, no, it must have value. So we're going to do it, but they haven't done it and they probably never will. It it's fury infuriating, but that's, you know, so it's very difficult to do that, but I almost always try to do that to retain the rights to do that. Or um, if they will not grant me the rights um, uh, I I try to work some kind of a, a first refusal. In other words, I say, okay, that uh, I don't have the rights, but, but uh, you have to, you know, if you refuse to do this album, then the rights will revert to us, or you agree to license that at, at a fair market value. And there's a lot of ways to do that, but uh, they become very complicated. And uh, what we have are, uh, it's kind of, we live in two different worlds. We live in the world of the big, uh, big studio companies, have banks and banks of like, uh, you know, in-house lawyers who are mostly uh, fearful of making a mistake. So they don't want to grant anything, you know, it's, they want to tell, the, the answer is say no to everything and keep everything because they don't want to have, you know, let go of something that might've had some value to somebody else. And then we live, the other part of it is in, um, in this independent world of independent filmmakers. Now we actually live in three worlds because we have the big studios, we have the independent filmmakers, and then we have, um, the, the mega conglomerates. We have the, the Netflix of the world who are you know, who are you know, becoming massive, um, you know, production arms as well as, as, as distributors uh, of product. And they have yet different attitudes and they're sort of in between, you know, they're trying to feel their way out. And, uh, and I'm finding them uh, equally difficult to deal with, you know, um, the, the easiest are oftentimes the independent because they just don't have the experience and um if, yeah sometimes you can they don't even they 're not even aware of the value of, of what they can have as a rights holder of what they can really monetize both in neighboring rights and in publishing rights you know it 's funny like I said you know a lot of this does though come back uh, in this one area and i don 't see this in the same in the record business uh publishing just sort of doesn 't have a, a factor on it but uh for some reason in and audio visual works for film and television um, a lot is driven um, that the PRO has set a certain standard in terms of what's going to be recognized. And that seemed to carry through. Not that it should. It should, you know, actually. But
2: uh, but sometimes what should and shouldn't happen. Dennis just made a, a point there which I uh, just wanted to highlight. Um, and it, he, he picked it up from something that you said, because I think it's so, so important, so critical. Uh, uh, I don't know which one of you said it first, but you said about um, we're not talking about publishing. We're talking about neighboring rights. Um, and yes, we are. But unfortunately, my experience in the film um, and TV world in terms of music is that everything is led by publishing um, and neighboring rights, related rights, whatever one wants to call them, is trying to catch up. But everything is driven by publishing. The contracts are driven by publishing contracts and you know, we're trying to fit neighbouring rights within those contracts because they only want one contract. Blah 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 blah. So that in itself is really, really something that you know we've really, really got to get up, get over. And that's why I was saying that it really someone needs to be driving it from the top. The second thing really was the bit about um, soundtrack. The one thing we always do have in contract. Is if we 're a production company or we 're working alongside a composer, then we will always have a reversionary clause in there that says that if um, the film production company does not release a soundtrack, then we can impose that we, we can basically take that back and we can release the soundtrack um, to our own benefit. Um, so that's that's something that we always build into the contracts. Do
0: you give them no. a limited amount of time for the release?
2: Yeah, we give them a time for the release. It's normally 60 days, always start from, off, you know, 60 days from release, from first box office release usually. Um, but we start Great. off with 30, they ask for 90, and we normally accept 60. So.
3: <laughs> that's brilliant. And the other part of it is having that soundtrack album album, you know, chances are these days of selling much physical product. There are people who actually collect soundtrack albums still. So that's an interesting But, but um, it's becoming an area... Where we've seen uh, broadcast, webcasting, and subscription services are actually opening up channels. Uh, I'm seeing now a couple of soundtrack channels where you can go on to a webcaster and, and they're going to play nothing but soundtrack albums. And and we're seeing that more, you know, because there's you know it it serves you know a, a very you know specific niche. Some people really like to have you know you know it's it sets a mood and they like to have mood music on and it's a you know just like the soundtrack. Played, you know, the underscore of the movie. Mm-hmm. They want to have it underscore, you know, underscore their daily, you know, activities. And so we're seeing that there's a value in that, and that has, you know, a significant neighboring rate. Um, and uh, uh, and those actually are treated the same. You know, when it's a, a statutory, at least in, in the U.S., when there's a statutory rate paid to sound exchange on that, it's the same statutory rate as if it were, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, a Taylor Swift record played on SiriusXM.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, we're actually um, doing a lot of soundtrack albums for that very reason, Dennis, at the moment. That's something that we're picking up um, on a, a regular basis, especially within certain genres. So if we're doing um, a country a um, country theme film, that, um, then obviously we're picking out country music on that. We have a lot of sci-fi. There's a lot of demand for for sci-fi music so we're releasing all those soundtracks and uh, they're actually selling very well far better than i thought Um, and we're generally not including any licensed tracks within those soundtracks we're actually using the original um, uh, soundtrack itself the composers work rather than any licensed in songs and they're doing extremely well um, much to my surprise but they are doing very very well
0: that's brilliant. So, Gina, would you be comfortable saying to one of your neighbouring rights clients, "I see that you did this um, piece of music, and it's a visual thing. Would you consider going back and trying to get soundtrack rights, or would you not push them that way?"
1: Yeah, we've actually we work with quite a few composers that have done soundtracks, and um, we've had quite a lot of success with claiming royalties for them. A lot of the time, composers are also Featuring on the recordings so keyboards guitar for example, so they've actually got a role but other times we've had composers that are just listed as composer and uh, We've received royalties for that as well because if they are the only person listed on that recording uh, We're able to claim them.
3: Well, I just want to say that uh, maybe one last thing is as as a word wise to everybody Uh, a lot of composers are the ones they perform all the parts on their music, and they, they tend to list themselves as the composer, and that seemed to be the most important thing. Uh, it's very important that they um, get a credit if, if you're doing a score like that, you should be uh, composed and performed because you will not get a neighboring right as a composer, but you will as a performer. Uh, and that also uh, includes if you're doing an orchestral score and you think, Well, I didn't perform anything, I just conducted. You know, the conductor is counted as a featured performer in most societies. And so it's very important to make sure that you list yourself for the performance aspect. So if you have performed as a conductor, if you, and also people oftentimes perform incidental things. Um, I had uh, I was working with James Horner on something, and and uh, this, um, you know, unfortunately James is gone, a very tragic acting, But uh, he was saying how he hadn't, he didn't do anything on it. And I said, and funny, I, said, I had been orchestrating. and I said, well, you did. You you played a whole bunch of piano parts. He goes, oh yeah, I just like you no, I forgot about this. I just. <laughs> You no, know, there was an extra, extra piano solos in, in the score. I said, well, that's part of the score, and you count as a performer. And I, you know, ended up putting, making sure he got put on, on a union contract where so you actually get paid through a secondary market fund. But it was – the mindset was he was the composer. And um, he he saw himself as a composer and the conductor because he liked to conduct and all that, but he uh, would fail to see himself as a performer in other contexts and and, and it was funny, so I, I spent some time with him and say, you know it really it, it's a mindset. you know there's nothing wrong with being a performer as well as a, as a composer. and if you don't credit yourself like that, make sure you're credited in such a way. Uh, you may not be you know getting the full measure of what you're entitled.
0: Thank you everybody for listening. We. Want you to become a member so that you can hear everything we have to say and have access to these podcasts on our website. Go to www.iafar.co.uk and click on the join button.